Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Oncology Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Quill. Today's episode features Dr. Miguel Escobar, Director of the Gulf States Hemophilia and Thrombophilia Center in Houston, Texas, Dr. Mark Redding, Director of the Center for Bleeding and Clotting Disorders at the University of Minnesota, and Dr. Guy Young, Director of the Hemostasis and Thrombosis Center at the Children's Hospital, Los Angeles. They will be answering questions posed during a live program on managing hemophilia A that was held in December 2021. Topics that they will discuss include which patients benefit from PK-guided therapy, current understanding of factor VIII peaks in thrombotic risk, as well as factor VIII in bone health, choosing between extended half-life products and emicizumab, and the potential role of the investigational agent Betusiram. This episode is part of a larger educational program titled Caring for Patients with Hemophilia A in the Midst of a Therapeutic Revolution. For more information on the experts, along with a link to the complete program, including downloadable slide sets, an expert commentary, an on-demand webcast, and a downloadable PDF covering the topics discussed in this podcast, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what the experts have to say on these important topics. Thank you, Mark and Guy. Now I'd like to uh, get into the, the questions uh, and some of the discussions. I think we got some very interesting data that's come in. And one of the questions is, you know, should every patient that is going to get factor, should she have a PK-guided therapy, right? Or is it necessary only in some patients? And the answer is no, no, I don't think every single patient needs to have a PK done. Uh, I think it, it depends on the type of patient, right? You know, if you have a very uh, sedentary patient, uh, let's say that you shot him on prophylaxis, he's been stable without any bleeding, I don't think it's really necessary to do PK in that study. And now if you have a patient that maybe is going from a standard to an extended half-life, and his goal is to get less infusions, uh, maybe he's an active patient, Sure, I think that patient could benefit from having a PK study. There is a lot of variability among the half-life of the factor eight. So there might be individuals that may not get a lot of, of benefit. And we have many of those patients where we have switched them. We do a PK and it's very similar to the, to the standard half-life. And those patients probably don't get a benefit. But we have other patients that certainly the half-life is much improved, and there's variation among the extended half-lives, as I showed, too. So those patients could actually decrease the amount of infusions from every four days or even every five days. So I think there's a lot of variability, and I guess it all depends on the type of patient that you have. Now, the next question about extended and standard half-life comes about the toxicity. I know there's been, you know, some questions have been raised, especially in the pediatric population. I'm going to have Guy maybe discuss a little bit about the maybe what is the toxicity of, with the extended half-life products. A lot has been talked about, you know, the PEG technology and whether that's safe and is there accumulation. In some animal studies, there has been uh, accumulation of PEG in some tissues. But then, you know, in more detailed toxicity studies, you know, there is a excretion or elimination of the PEG over time. You know, frankly, I don't really worry about it. That's my personal approach. I think that if the best factor product for that patient happens to be a pegylated product, it's been studied in children, and we have, you know, several years of data, and 
don't see toxicities. I'm, I'm personally comfortable using that. But I acknowledge that, you know, there is no data on 10 years worth of, you know, using these PEG molecules in, in pediatric patients. I will say, just keep in mind that both recombinant standard half-life and plasma-derived products do have PEG in them as well. It's not as much, it's not that like a standard half-life factor 8 has zero PEG and an extended half-life has a ton of PEG. Personally, I don't worry about it that much. Now, Mark, you, you talked about some of the issues in the older population, and, and certainly, you know, many of these patients have already osteopenia from either their aging or the, or the hemophilia itself. Uh, and the question is, you know, if the patient is not receiving factor eight therapy, is this an issue because factor eight might help with bone mineral density, or is that something that maybe is only seen in the pediatric population, or is that a concern even in the adult? Bone density is a concern uh, in all of our patients, there's been a lot of discussion and, and speculation about whether factor eight has a role outside of coagulation, uh, in particular in terms of bone health. There, there are some interesting yeah, laboratory data that suggests perhaps factor eight is important, but we really haven't seen yet convincing data in humans that, that this is a huge, a huge issue. Um, more studies would be helpful, but you know the problem is the bone density issues that we see in our patients, there are many, many variables that contribute to that. A lot of it is just the, you know, in the older patients, the inability to do weight-bearing exercise. And, and frankly, I think, you know, for a lot of our adult patients, uh, some of this may be that we just haven't paid attention to primary care issues for a lot of years because we were so focused on hemophilia and, and for a certain segment of time, we were focused on the viral issues. And, and so we're now finally able to pay attention to primary care things like bone density and so on. So I, I think for now, we don't have any data that says there's a huge uh, impact of, of not having factor eight but certainly we welcome more data in that regard. And I think in, in our clinics, we, we, we're being actually more aggressive, you know, checking vitamin D levels and, and doing all this to try to also help, you know, those individuals. I don't know if really factor eight at that age is going to make a difference in their, in their bone density. Now, there's another question in regards to the, the, the high peaks of factor eight that sometimes we have with prophylaxis. Uh, and I know this has been discussed for many years. You know, it, it, do we consider that as a high risk for thrombosylicity in an individual, maybe with diabetes, with hypertension, some coronary disease? Is that an issue be having peaks two, three times a week in a population like this? Realistically, if we're dosing appropriately, we're not seeing peaks of three, four hundred percent. We're seeing peaks in, you know, 100, maybe 150 percent. You know, if we think about physiologic factor levels in people who don't have hemophilia, we get peaks like that all the time. So I, I guess my personal view is I don't think the peaks are really high enough to, to really be a, a, a clear thrombotic trigger uh, in our hemophilia patients. We don't have data that, that validates that. But if you think about normal factor eight physiology uh, and response to physiologic stress, I, I don't think the levels that we're seeing are, are in the scary zone at all. Probably I'll get concerned if there's a constant high level of factor eight. I think that that's very different. Issue. Absolutely. But I, I agree with you. Those peaks, I'm not concerned about them either. Now, there's a question here. Guy, when he showed some of the data on emisuzumab, there was a, an individual, I think, that had an MI while on emisuzumab. If you have an older individual that you consider putting them on, on emisuzumab, <laughs> would you add aspirin to that patient? Uh, just because he has, let's say, coronary disease, that's something to consider. Yeah, I, I, would, I wouldn't do it just because we put him on emisuzumab, but if that individual has an indication for aspirin because of his cardiovascular disease risk factors, on emesismab prophylaxis, I would be very comfortable having that person on aspirin. Right. I wouldn't be worried about bleeding. Now, uh, Guy, you presented data on, on the use of emesismab, and I talked about the extended half-life, and you did as well. So 
when do you consider that patient to be a candidate, let's say the active young guy or teenager? Is it misuzumab the best molecule for him? Or you know, is it an extended half-life you know, with PK analysis? If this patient is going to be extremely active, when do you say, well, emisuzumab might not be enough for you to be doing that kind of activity? Yeah, it's very difficult. I mean, there really isn't, um, you know, data on this. And, and in our clinical practice, we've relied on peak levels to protect patients during, you know, strenuous or risky physical activity, be it basketball or soccer or, or ice hockey or things like that. When we think about prophylaxis, we always talk about the trough. Keep the trough above here. But when it comes to physical activity, you know, it's probably the peaks that matter. And so if somebody's really active multiple times a week and you, you know, want to make the choice that will protect them the best, it's probably a standard half-life factor eight, given on multiple occasions during the week, even odd schedules. If somebody plays sports, you know, Wednesday, Friday, and then have games Saturday, Sunday, Maybe they should dose Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, because you're really aiming for the peaks. So I think it's really just being thoughtful about what are you accomplishing with the factor therapy or emesizumab, and what is the patient's lifestyle, and where do you want to put them for a protection? Yeah, I think you know, it would be important to get more data uh, in the near future about high-risk activities, or because I, I think it's important to be able to assess yeah, the joint status and the type of activity and maybe the age as well of, the, of these individuals. The most of the breakthrough bleed that at least we see in our center is related to activities uh, and not so much as spontaneous bleed. Yeah, I mean, pretty much the only bleeds I see on patients on emicizumab are clear trauma-related bleeds, not like, I think I stepped funny. No, I was playing soccer and I planted my foot and my ankle turned a little and now I have a bleed. It didn't turn that much. I don't think it's a sprained ankle, but it, but it's a bleed. It, it, it's that kind of trauma that is you know, clear and obvious trauma that is leading to bleeds with emicizumab. You spoke about fituzuran. Let's say fituzuran is approved. How do you think it will fit into the treatment paradigm of, you know, hemophilia? This would be a molecule that can be used in hemophilia A and B with and without inhibitor. When you're talking about, you know, fituzuran specifically, you know, where will it fit? Well, we don't have anything subcutaneous for hemophilia B, so that immediately becomes the obvious group. And hemophilia B with inhibitors is the most obvious group because they really suffer and they don't really have a lot of options. Most of the patients have anaphylaxis to factor IX. So they're limited to, you know, factor 7A molecules. There's at least two now on the market that you can pick and choose from those to try to treat them or even try to prevent bleeding. So that, that's the most obvious fit. When it comes to heme A, uh, you know, emicizumab has been really excellent and a revelation. But as we mentioned, we see trauma-related bleeds. Is fetusaran going to be more effective at preventing those kind of bleeds? If so, could be that active patients who are having some trauma-related bleeds with emicizumab who maybe don't want to be on factor, maybe that could be an option for them. But we're going to have to see how that plays out. So how fetusaran fits into the heme paradigm where we already have a subcutaneous drug, I think we'll have to see you know, more and more data. And, and at some point, some sort of, be hard to do a true real comparative trial, but, but some sort of data that you know, gives us some sense of how these two are working in the different types of patients. From the phase two study, we did see very low ABRs, similar to what we've seen with emicizumab. Now, the last question that we have here is, is back to uh, the issue about the PEG. Is there any long-term, you know, let's say 10-year data, uh, you know, looking for PEG in, in the spleen or the liver and in terms of accumulation? Do you know of any, any data that might be available 
I mean, we've only had EHL drugs on the market since 2014. The clinical trials started, you know, a few years before that. So yeah. we're probably just getting to the point now where we have folks that have actually been on them 10 years. Um, th there are long-term follow-up studies, I think, for all of the clinical trial programs that are still ongoing. I think the data mostly, the concern comes more from animal data, right? Right. Yeah. We haven't seen any signals so far in the long-term follow-up studies, uh, as far as I know. Well, that's all the time we have, I think, to our speakers, Guy and, and Mark. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Escobar, Dr. Redding, and Dr. Young. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder, to view the full program, Caring for Patients with Hemophilia A in the Midst of a Therapeutic Revolution, and to download the associated PDF from the Clinical Care Options website, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening.